0: Hello, I'm Marcus Rilton, and this is the ScotsCare podcast. ScotsCare is the only charity dedicated to helping disadvantaged Scots in London through a range of support, including mental health therapy, financial grants, advocacy, sheltered housing for older Scots, job coaching, social events, befriending, and support for children and families. The charity has been running for 400 years to help break the cycle of poverty experienced by some Scots in London. In this series of the Gear podcast, I'll be chatting to celebrities and supporters of the charity that have forged a life often away from Scotland and about the ups and downs that can bring. Joining me on the podcast today is former Queen's Guard author and playwright Paul Bogie. Paul was raised in Edinburgh and by 18 was running with a gang and hooked on heroin. His addiction lasted seven long years, nearly killing him until he managed to turn his life around. Paul went from heroine to hero, guarding the Queen at Buckingham Palace and spending five years in one of the UK's toughest regiments. During lockdown, he wrote a book about his life, decided to give all the profits to charity and when it was turned into a play for the Edinburgh Fringe, it received rave reviews. It's great to be able to chat to him today. Scots Care. For Scots in London in need of support, financial, practical or emotional help. Hi Paul. Hello Marcus. Thanks for coming on the ScotsCare podcast.
1: You're more than welcome.
0: I've read a lot about you recently and one of the things that, that's come up a couple of times that I wanted to ask you about just because it's not a lot it's not something I know a lot about is that you describe yourself as a recovering addict and I was wondering will you always re- describe yourself as a recovering addict or is there one day where you say that's not how I identify anymore?
1: Yeah, the, the truth is no addict will ever be recovered, which was a, a term that I used to use when I first got clean of heroin. People used to ask me, um, are you in recovery? And I would always say, no, I'm recovered because I don't take the drugs anymore. But the truth of the matter is that I'm always going to be in recovery till the day I die. And so will every other addict. It's part of who we are. And We always have to be mindful of, you know, the triggers and the reasons why we would take drugs and all those sorts of things. We always have to be mindful of that because, unfortunately, once upon a time, we were Mm -hmm. addicts. It's part of who we are. We can't just turn off, you know, even after we stop taking drugs. So, Mm -hmm. unfortunately, um, you know, it's always going to be there. So I will always be in recovery.
0: And see, are you always mindful of it in yourself? And I'm not saying it's front of mind every single day when you get up and you're having your shreddies or something, but is it always is it always part of you thinks there could be a misstep one day or this is just this is just me, you know, that it happened once, it could happen again?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm I'm 18 years off heroin now. So, you know, that's a lifetime in yeah. itself, Marcus. And I, I know deep down I will never take heroin ever again till the day I die. I know that. Um, I don't have to fight in my mind every day, you know, to refrain myself from going to my local heroin dealer and getting a bag. I don't have to do that. Um, I think
0: that's what I was wondering, whether it is, you know, I think like alcoholism can be that way where you're every, you know, day by day, you're thinking that's another day where I've got through it without thinking about having a beer or something.
1: No, and it's and it's just no it's not like that for me. Um obviously everybody's different, but it's not like that for me. I talk about heroin every single day on social media. Every single day I'm doing live videos with people. Um I talk a lot on my own as well. And I am discussing my life, how I stopped. And that's a continued thing where I'm always the word heroin is always coming up. I'm always reliving moments in my life to try and help other people understand how I stopped. So even things like that, they're not a trigger for me in the yeah. sense that when I'm when I'm thinking about a time past, when I used to take heroin and it felt amazing. When I when I'm discussing and telling people about that, it's not a trigger for me to think, oh, you know, in my mind I'm reliving those moments and how amazing would it be to go and get a bag of heroin right now because you you've got these memories of when it was amazing. Um, you know, it's just not like that. Um heroin nearly destroyed my life.
0: But you're using it now. It's interesting. I spoke to someone last week who was talking about having negative thoughts to drive positive actions. And that's kind of what you do these days, isn't it? You kind of you're thinking about parts of your life and talking about parts of your life to other people that were negative in order to drive a kind of positive stimulus.
1: Yeah, well yeah. my The life that I've led, the way that I feel about it now is, all the crap that I went through hasn't been for nothing. You know, I'm now giving back and sharing sharing how I stopped heroin in the hope that other people can perhaps try it the way that I've done it and get into long-term recovery as well. So it's amazing for me. It's amazing for me still to be alive. And I'm grateful for it, you know, and it's amazing for me to be helping addicts every single day the way that I do because, you know, it's a win-win. And I say that quite a lot, Marcus. It's one of those things. I take a great deal helping people for my own personal mental health. And the people that are receiving some of the knowledge and experience that I've got and taking it on board in their own personal lives, they're winning as well.
0: So let's go back to the the beginning then Paul Where were you brought up? Because you sound like you're from the other side of the country from me
1: So I'm on the East Coast I was brought
0: up in the East Coast, Edinburgh Yeah, because I was was Glasgow born and bred You're not a Hibs Hibs fan or something ridiculous like that, are you Paul?
1: Yes I am a Hibs (laughs) fan, yes you're
0: right No I'm only kidding, I can't speak, I'm a Partick Thistle fan
1: all right, oh, right.
0: I definitely can't speak there. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, you were born and brought up in Edinburgh. I, I used to work in Edinburgh in the nineties in Leith Docks. I worked on a radio station in Leith Docks, and this was before the Parliament, and there was nothing there, Paul. It was just, it was just a wasteland. It was just chaos there. What was your, What was your school like? Because the nearest thing we had when I was going to school for a uniform was a ranger's top. Was was <laughs> your school rough?
1: My school I was. I went to Leith Academy. You know, and we but we had the new school. So I was the first first year in the new in the new school. So everything was all brand new. You know, school 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 was okay. I was a bit of a clown. I yeah. never really engaged that much. I was more about having a joke and a laugh with everyone, um, jumping around with all my daft friends and no really I always put I always put things off. I remember the first year, I was like, Oh, I'll concentrate next year. And I'll do something. And then second year, I'll do it in third year. And before I knew it, I'm finishing fourth year, 16, you know, and I'm looking at getting a job because I want to earn money and the realisation that I never really pushed on at school like what I could have. I could have been a lot more intelligent, Marcus, than what I am. I know that. But, you know, it's one of those things. It's life. And I certainly don't lose any sleep (laughs) sitting thinking, oh, you know, if I'd stuck in at school... I could have been a doctor or a solicitor right now. Um, you know, what's meant for me won't go by me.
0: It's tough, though, isn't it? I, I have this discussion with my boy, my older boy, who's 13, and I kind of watch school slip by him a lot, you know, and I'm saying, you got to stick in, you got to stop getting the detentions, you got to stop shouting out in class. And what I'm happy about now for kids, when I look at the support network he has around him. He's got, you know, football clubs, judo clubs, boxing clubs. And I don't think we had that. I mean, I'm slightly older than you, but we never had that when I was growing up as part of my school.
1: No, and that's, that was a big part of the drug taking, the drug drug abuse for us growing up. I was in a gang, you know, for a very, very early age. And, you know, there's maybe like 30, 40, 50 hours. Used to hang around at school and... There was nothing for us to do. The age, the ages within the gang, you know, there's some eight year olds and there's some 25 year olds. So, and it was a whole array of different ages. And we all just used to hang around, but you know, these older guys, who some of them were alcoholics, you know, they, they were able to go to the shop and buy bottles of Marydown, bottles of Buckfast, vodka, cans of lager, and they would bring it to, within, the, within the gang. So we all had access to it very easily.
0: Scots Care, helping to break the cycle of deprivation for Scots in London. Was there gateway drugs like alcohol or cannabis before heroin then?
1: Yeah, so these drugs were always on the scene for primary school age. There was alcohol all the time, um, cannabis all the time, um, glue sniffing, gas sniffing, there was pills on the on the scene I never touched. For me personally, I didn't like drinking alcohol. Um, I'd done it because everybody else was doing it, but I didn't like the feeling. Um, I smoked cannabis, didn't like the feeling, but again, I'm doing it because everybody else is doing it. You know, so and people talk about gateway drugs, and it can be the case. For me, it wasn't mm. at all. For me it was it was different. And for all my friends who ended up lost on that drug, um, it wasn't a gateway, it was lack of education. And this is this is the thing for you know, my mum and dad told me heroin kills. Schools told me that heroin kills. So I had this belief growing up that heroin kills. So when I was 18, and me and a dozen of my friends, you know. Maybe occasionally, occasionally smoke cannabis, occasionally have a few beers. We were never heavy drinkers, but you know, and heroin comes on the scene. And obviously everybody was different. The reasons why I would start to take heroin in the first place, I was very naive. I'm chasing the dragon.
0: Yeah, I read that, that you never injected. you, And, and no. therefore, I read that you said you were you were of the mind that you probably couldn't get addicted when you were 18, you know, because you weren't injecting.
1: No, we used to joke about it and laugh about it in the car, on our way to get heroin. We my friends, sadly, they have passed away because of the drug abuse. But we used to laugh in the car, looking at each other and saying, you'll get addicted first. Paul, you'll get addicted first. It'll definitely be you. And I'd be like, no, it's going to be you. And we used to joke and laugh about it, totally naive, and to think, because there wasn't a belt, a spoon, and a needle, and we wanted to put in, we wanted to inject in that we couldn't get addicted, and how wrong we were. And like I said there, you know, I've lost um, sadly a lot of lovely people um, that were great guys, and they're sadly no longer with us because, like me, they became addicted, but they weren't able to find they weren't able to find a way out, and they they stayed on on the hard drugs for forever until they passed. Now, you, you, know, you spent
0: it, seven years until you were 25, but you were also working at the same time. So you were holding down a job and earning cash, which I presume you used the cash to buy, buy heroin. And you were functional. So it wasn't like you were just non-functional, or lying around.
1: No, it was the first two years I worked full-time, suited and booted. You know, I worked in a big office in Edinburgh. I'll not no say the name of the company. It is out there, but I'm not going to say it. Um, You know, and I was going with... A bag of heroin in my sock with my folded up tinfoil. You know, I was a mailroom attendant, so my job was to deliver mail. And I just used to go into the toilets and and the the toilets with my tinfoil and sit and chase a dragon on the cubicle. And I used to be questioned and I'd say, it's my sinuses. I've got hay fever. I've not been sleeping very well. Excuses, and it used to work, you know, and people would notice, you know, and over time, of course physically heroin starts to take its toll mentally it also starts to take its toll and there does become a point where i'm no longer able to function i'm crying all the time i'm angry all the time you know and and obviously i, I couldn't hold down my job but i had done it for two years so I, I certainly was functioning and my parents never knew yeah. other than the people that i was taking heroin with nobody knew um you know, you could pass it off as just smoking cannabis.
0: I think what I found really interesting is that you said that you tried to get off it. So you obviously had, you know, a will to get off it. and You wanted to get off it and you tried, am I right, saying 13 times to go cold turkey? And I I was wondering when I was reading this, at any point, Paul, did you think, oh, do you know what, it would just be easier to succumb to the drugs?
1: Yeah, and th- those, those 13 times... Um, A few of those times were not through choice, Marcus. That was through drug dealers in Edinburgh getting busted (laughs) and me being able to get the drug. So I was forced into going cold turkey on those occasions. And that was harder. That was harder. Um, The times where I would look at my mum and dad's eyes, I would see the tears in their eyes, I'd have tears in my eyes, and I'd be promising them, to the bottom of my heart, give me like twenty pounds one last time, and I promise, Mum, I'll stop. And that's all they wanted for me was just to stop, and I would promise them time after time that I would stop.
0: And i would a hundred percent sincere, Paul, when you were saying that.
1: Hundred percent, mate, and I meant and that, and you know, that broke my heart. And what it done was, when I was ina- when I was unable to stop after. Promising my mum that I would, that made things worse. It made that it made me want to take heroin even more to forget about what I was putting my mum through. You know, to be to be straight and have to live with the guilt, the embarrassment, and the shame that I've put on my family. That was no that wasn't no, an option for me. I couldn't cope with that. So heroin was my was my friend. So I knew that heroin would take those feelings away. So it, it sort of delved me deeper in as things went on, the more times I promised, the more £20 I've got and never stopped. It just made me go into a much darker world and and you give up. Yeah. And it's that's the hardest bit is is that is that giving up. Because once you give up, you're just waiting to die.
0: I get the escape. I get why you would take it again and again, because we're all full of good intentions. And then you just think, oh, do you know what? If it's not heroin, it's just a few more beers to numb it a bit or just take the edge off. I I get it. I think the interesting thing is that what you found to get yourself out of it was a kind of non-traditional method. You went and you did a course that wasn't, this really fascinated me, that wasn't to do with kicking it. It was about investigating your creative subconscious. And that worked for you.
1: Yeah. And that's why I do what I do. And I will keep banging my drum and I will keep sharing my story um, and I will keep Banging on the on the doors of the government and telling them that they need to listen to me.
0: What was it about? What did this course do for you? How did it kind of rewire your brain?
1: So it was a, it was um, it was through Cyrenians, which is a homeless charity in Edinburgh. Um, I was accepted on the course, and on the fourth week of that course, there was an American psychologist guy called Lou Tice who was going to teach us about the power of the mind. Nothing to do with addiction whatsoever. And I was like, shut up. You know, I'm an addict. I'm always going to be an addict. And this this crazy psychologist is not going to be able to teach me anything. Um, it's not going to be as easy as or oh, the power of the mind, to, uh, you know, to decide to stop. And that'll be it, because that's not going to work. So I was very negative-minded about it. But I went to the course and I sat and I listened to the guy talking about self-talk, um, the way that I portray myself in the mirror the way that I think about myself on a daily basis, the subconscious mind, the creative subconscious mind, and and all these things. And it was crazy because initially I didn't take it on board or I believed that I didn't take it on board because I never stopped straight away. I went back to drugs. And, you know, it was a a couple of months later, um, the 14th of May, 18 years ago, and I woke up in the morning. You know, I'm I'm an eight-stone skeleton. My ribs are showing. I look in the mirror, and you know I've got the black circles. I'm all white and gone. It look like a skeleton. I look in the mirror, and I felt that something was different, and I couldn't quite pinpoint what it was. And then everything made sense. What this guy, what this psychologist was telling me about it being a choice, and who has the power to make the choices in my life, whereas I was I was always of the belief that it was up to my parents and my brothers and the government or the doctor or it's always somebody else's job to decide what's right for me or what I should or shouldn't do. And I always had that belief and the realisation in that mirror when I looked at myself, square in the eyes, said don't fucking ask for heroin ever again because you're never getting it. That was me asking myself, what do I want in life? And in a split second, I was able to answer straight away without even having to think about it, because all I wanted back then in life was not to be a heroin addict. So in the mirror, when I asked myself the question and I got the instant answer and I got the goosebumps the size of golf balls and I realised I've done it and it was as quick and instant as that, I knew, Mm. you know, cold turkey hasn't even set in yet. It's in the pipeline. I can feel that I'm not well and I've only got an hour or two before I'm in shit state. Um and I knew that time, you know, I'm never going to touch a drug ever again. I can't tell my parents because they'll not believe me. Yes. I can't tell everyone because I've relapsed so many times that they're just going to say, Yeah, this is just going to be another one of those occasions. You'll go back on it in a few days. Um, but I knew myself, and that was all because I learned about me. I learned about who I was. And the realisation that it is my choice what I do in life, not anybody else's. And this is what this Lou Tice character was telling me. It's, it's my choice. It's up to me to decide what I want. So I will decide not to be a heroin addict. I will decide to get better. I will decide to get extremely fit. I will decide to get a job. I will get a car back. I will get a flat. I will get a girlfriend. I will do something in my life turned out to be the Scots Scarves. Could have been absolutely anything.
0: Scots Care. Supporting Scots away from home in London. Your life at this point must have been devoid of structure, devoid of discipline. And even with this kind of epiphany that you have, strong-minded epiphany, you could have said, do you know what? I'll get back on the straight and narrow. I'll get a job in the library. i will got a job in Sainsbury's. But you joined the Scots Guards. I mean, that's you. How did you adapt physically and mentally to from where you were to one of the toughest regiments in the world?
1: From that moment in the mirror, 18 years ago, um, I had to firstly start eating. Then I turned my addiction from heroin to running.
0: Mm-hmm. So
1: I used to run around Edinburgh, forest gumping it everywhere. <laughs> um, and I literally was addicted to running. And over time, I started to get extremely fit. Then I got a job. Then things just started to... My life was good. My life was better. My life was amazing. This mindset that I had was allowing me to start to be happy. But there was something missing in my life. And I didn't know what it was. It was a bit like an itch. And I just just felt like, you know, it's amazing what I've done. Getting clean. My family are proud of me. My friends are proud of me. People that didn't even know me are proud of me for getting clean. But for me, I was I didn't really feel that sense of pride. And I thought, you know, I need just need to do something before it's too late. I need to disrespect to anybody that works in a supermarket. But I remember sitting on the forklift thinking, you know, I didn't want I didn't want to draw my pension out here driving this forklift. I feel like I should be doing something else and I don't know what it is. I've seen a paper on my on my lunch break and it said, Army be the best. And that was it. I read it. And <laughs> that was when this realisation is that, you know, I'm on the mindset, I can do anything that I want. How about being a soldier?
0: Yeah, because you were 30 at, this, 30 at this point, weren't you?
1: Yeah, so I'm, I'm approaching my 30th birthday. And the age to join the army used to be 27, the cut-off age. Okay. So even although I'm reading that newspaper article, In my mind, I'm thinking, well, the the cutoff age for the army is 27. So I'm too old. My time to be a soldier has been and gone. It's too late. I can't remember what I was doing in Edinburgh. I was along at Shadwick Place, the West End. And I was walking past and I seen the army office. And I thought, well, maybe if I can't be a soldier, I enjoy cooking. You know, I could be a chef or maybe there's something else that I could maybe do. So for whatever reason, I walked into the office. And there's a pipe major in the Guards sitting there. And he, and, and he just looks at me and says, how old are you? And I say, like, 30. He says, are you fit? I said, yeah. I says, I love weights. I'm boxing now. Um, I run every single day. He says, right, you know, keep keep it up. I'll get you the Scots guards. Oh, and no. it, was a, it was it it was was such a short interview. and handed me loads of pamphlets. And then it was that, that whole thing. I didn't even know who the Scots guards were. Brilliant. I didn't have the idea, Marcus. I never had a clue, right? So I ran home. <laughs> ran <laughs> I ran home. home by, uh, Prince, Prince all the way along Prince's Street, down into Lock End, Brilliant. to my flat, and I get I get the laptop out, and I type into Google Scots guards. and then I'm I'm watching. You're watching these things on on the laptop, and it's like, oh, toy soldiers.
0: Yeah.
1: Oh, he's telling me I can be a toy soldier. Um, <laughs> I had to take a few seconds, and then I thought. Do you know what? Everybody's going to laugh <laughs> if I say that I'm going to become a soldier at 30 after the life that I've led. Everybody will laugh.
0: And after that, that point, you weren't really a royalist, or you weren't the fan of the royal family or the Queen.
1: No, and 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 that's this is the thing as well. Certainly on social media, people make up their own assumptions about me because I, I was a Scots Guard yeah. um, growing up and stuff. I lived in an area called Craig and, Craig and Tinnick. Not too far for Leith. Now, I'm a Hibs fan. So as a Hibs fan, I'm not allowed to support the Queen. Of that's course. what all my Rangers and Hearts fans do.
0: Yeah, that's that's what it was like so, when we were going up I'm, school. Yeah.
1: You know, we, we, were, we were with the Hibs and the Celtic. We, yeah. we were together. And the, all my Hibs, all my Hearts friends and my Rangers friends, every weekend they used to come out with their Union Jacks and say, God save the Queen, sing all the songs. And then all the Hibs fans and the and the Celtic fans would come out and sing all the IRA songs. Yeah, yeah. And we would, you know, and that was life growing up. So, you know, for me to end up guarding the Queen outside Buckingham Palace and presenting arms to her, you know, it was it wasn't a lifelong dream as some people portray it to be. It was me at the age of 30 wanting to do something positive and do something good with my life, do something you know, to scratch that itch and just do something, and you know, it just so happened that when I went into the recruitment office, it was the pipe major of the Scots Guards sitting there. It could have been any regiment that I ended up in, and I'm I'm, I'm glad it was the Scots Guards because it was just a crazy time.
0: <laughs> and did that give you another uh, level of structure to your life? You know, I've got a few friends that have been in the army and come out of the army, and. And they've done okay, but they did both admit when they were in the army, you know, you're told when to get up, you're told when to eat, you're told when to look left, look right. And then and then when you look into stats of the amount of ex-service people that struggle when they come out of the army, you know, I think it's 6% of homeless in the UK are, are ex-service people and 30% of homeless in the US are ex-service people. So it's a difficult life in, to come out of the army and then find another structure, isn't it?
1: Yeah, and and it's more difficult for... For the younger ones, if you join in the army, it's eighteen or it's sooner. You're maybe in the cadets, and you've only had this life of structure and discipline, and you've always been told what to do, where to go, and what time to be there. And you've always been um, punished if you've if you if you've played up, you know. And you've always had that in your life. And then you leave. It's very very difficult for these everyone, but certainly younger the younger guys. When they've only ever known a life uh, having that structure, and then when it's taken away, and they come come back out in the city street and the struggle, and it's and it is that it's that lack it's that lack of structure that they're missing. Like you said, there's a lot a lot of homeless vet, uh, veterans and stuff, and it's it's just uh, such a shame. For me, I was you know I was thirty, I was I was older than everybody, Marcus. Mm. I'm older than my platoon commander. I'm older than all my sergeants and my corporals. I'm older than them all. I've already lived a life prior to joining. Yeah. I've, alri- I've already been broken down mentally and built myself back up. So as much as the army teaches so much and the army do, you know, they break you down a little bit and build you back up to be this amazing soldier or amazing guardman. And that's what they were doing. It never really worked for me because in my mind I'd already been in that dark place and I'd already built myself back up so when Mm. I left uh, 2015 I was medically discharged after breaking my back and crushing my spine that reintegration into civilian life I didn't find it as difficult as I'm sure a lot of the guys did Um, you know because it was was only 5 years and you know it was was from 30 years old till 35 Mm. so I didn't struggle as much as as what a lot of the other guys do. What I struggled with was obviously the the amount of drugs that I was on by the doctor.
0: Yeah, that might must have been scary for you to almost go into back into this landscape that you'd worked so hard to get out of.
1: Yeah, I went full circle at times. You know, I'm sitting in the same flat that I used to take heroin in, and I'm sitting there getting wasted on tramadol and codeines and diazepams and sleeping tablets, and and I'm sitting there broken physically, but more so mentally, and, I, and I'm sitting in this flat and I'm thinking, looking at the same four walls and thinking, this whole army chapter in my life, is it a dream? Did it really happen? Sitting wallowing in self-pity and just becoming really bitter with the world because of what had happened. My military career was ended through no fault of my own. Um, and I believed that I was being punished because I was a heroin addict earlier on in life. And I remember I used to sit and think that that's what's happened now. I'm just being punished. It's like they've dangled a dangled a carrot for me and and now I'm paying the price for all my drug use early on in life. So how did
0: you get off that again? Was it more positive visualisation to... Uh, and what happens with you? I presume that you still have back issues. Then would you just live in pain with your back?
1: Yeah. So I just live in the pain now. Um, what happened is I wrote a book. I was—I've been writing the book for a whole, a long, long parts of my rehabilitation. A drug counselor once said, "You know, you should write down how you feel." So I done that, and then I wrote a lot about when I was in the army in Canada. Um, some exercises. I used to sit with my notepad and pen and write bits about my life. And then at the beginning of the lockdown. You know, I'm, a, I'm on all these tablets, I'm smoking a lot of cannabis, I am bitter, in self-pity. My wife comes in and says, you know, we're going to, there's this virus, you're not going to be able to go out. <laughs> so I was like, oh, it might be a couple of weeks then, what will I do? I said, do you know what, I might, just, I might just finish this book once and for all and just write it. So I dug out all the paper and I sat for three days and three nights writing the book. And an amazing thing happened, Marcus, where... Um, I am sitting writing about the time in the mirror, 18 years ago, Yeah. about Lou Tice, this crazy American psychologist teaching me about the subconscious and the creative subconscious and self-talk. And I'm writing about this. A light bulb went off again in my mind where I'm sitting and I'm thinking, what the hell are you doing? What are you actually doing? You're letting everybody else, you're letting all these spinal specialists tell you that you have to be on drugs for the rest of your life. And that you have to accept it. All the military doctors, all the civilian doctors are all telling you you're on drugs, you're on drugs, and you've accepted it. So I was like, shame on you. You, you know better. There's one, you know, you're not going to know what it's going to be like unless you try and stop. So when I finished the book, I decided I'm going to come off all my meds, come off all the cannabis, and see how my back, how I can cope with the back pain. And I just tapered off slowly and just every day just reducing a little bit less a little bit less you know went through the whole withdrawals went through all the the mind problems that that come with breaking an addiction but in a very strong mindset through re-educating myself whilst I was writing the book um and realizing it's up to me ask yourself the question what do you want boom I didn't want to be a drug addict. I never used the word heroin because obviously, you know, 18 years ago it was heroin. There, it was, I didn't want to be a drug addict. So I put things in place and, you know, and I just kept chipping away and I come off and I realised that we're having a crushed spine. I'm in physical pain anyway. You know, I'm getting all these copious amounts of drugs for the doctors. My back's still sore. So... Didn't make sense when yeah. I stopped the drugs. My back was still sore, so you know. Initially, I, I was angry. I was angry. No, I wasn't even angry at the doctors. I was angry at myself. I was like, "You've yeah. just spent you you've just spent five years in your life taking all these drugs." And the truth of the matter is that you didn't need as many of those drugs as both probably what you thought you did or what you were told you did. And only through Engaging yourself, have you have you realized that you didn't need all these drugs? You didn't need any of them. I'm two years and six months drug-free. Um, and that's amazing. It's amazing for me because I totally believed that I was gonna end up an opiate addict for the rest of my life again. And I've done it again for a second time.
0: Writing the book must have given you a fabulous sense of worth because it got loads of good reviews. Hero to hero, and it got turned into a play at the Edinburgh Festival. And every review I read about it, it is fantastic. This is a great thing. I mean, does it give you a sense of worth? Do you feel pleased about this?
1: Yeah. So when I, when I when I finished the book, and I'm and, and I'm thinking about publishing it, and I'm thinking about my family, and I'm thinking about what people will think. You know, some of the things that I speak about in the book are quite deep and brutally honest with the words that I speak and the words that I write. So I was sitting thinking, <clears throat> you know, what am I going to do? And then I was like, right, I'm going to publish it. But what I want to do is I want to give all the profits to homelessness in Scotland. It was strange because as soon as I had that thought, it made sense. Yeah. I didn't know that thought even existed. I've only been homeless very briefly, sofa surfing, sleeping in stairwells all day, sleeping in the car. I've never had it. I've never had it hard. But when I was, I was actually sitting listening to Tom Walker, and it was um, "Leave a Light On," sitting listening to that song, yeah. and I was sitting listening, it, and I'm and I'm sitting with the book, looking over, and what am I going to do? Publish the book? What now? Then what? Why don't you give all the money away to homelessness in Scotland and help some of these people out there that are? No getting helped. So it made sense. As soon as I thought about it, boom, that's what I'm doing. You know, and true the truth is my family weren't the best pleased because you know <laughs> I'm just I'm giving away all this money and it's what over 13000 pounds now that oh, I've raised. <clears throat> so they weren't the best pleased with me, but for me, you know, it felt right and it and it does feel right. And you know, one day, Marcus, hero into hero will explode all over the world and I will make a lot more than 13,000 pounds through that book. And I might, you know, I might have to die before that happens, hopefully not, but you know, th- that book forever more will help homeless people somewhere in Scotland. Cause I'm um, as much as, you know, I was a Scots Guardsman down in London and stuff. I'm very much a proud Scotsman and as well. So that's what that's what I want to do with that book. But it was a a massive feeling of pride, and it was a real, real genuine feeling of pride. It made me happy, and it still makes me happy today, and it always will till the day I die.
0: Where can we buy this book?
1: Um, so, like- so, so so it's on Amazon. So I just I self published because the, the publishers and stuff they take such a large chunk. Yes. Um, And royalties, they're the ones that are going to benefit financially through my book. And that didn't really sit well with me. I thought, you know, I'll go to social media, (laughs) I'll get my social media, my Facebook and Instagram, and I'll talk about the book and I'll promote it. And that'll generate that mean that I'll get more money from Amazon to give to the homeless people rather than a publisher and benefiting from it. So that's what I've done. And it's been not too bad. You know, doing the play at Edinburgh Fringe. Headlining army at the fringe, at all places. There's a digital copy that's just going to be released soon too, Marcus. And I've not watched it. I've not watched it all yet. I've only watched a few minutes. Um, I miss it. Yeah, I bet. I miss what I miss watching it. It's Tony done an amazing job of creating. You know, through through reading the book and working with me on Zoom calls, and he's created this our show, and it's a one man show. Um, he's just done an amazing job. And again, it's going to open up doors, hopefully.
0: It'd be brilliant to see it come to London or see it come to Glasgow or somewhere like that. That'd be lovely. Let's keep in touch. Please come on again. And I sincerely hope you, I, I'd like to see it. You know, I, I've not been to the Edinburgh Fringe in about 25 years. And every time I went there when I was when I was a kid, I really enjoyed it. I hope it comes to London. I'll definitely go and see it. And uh, we'll make sure we, we mention the book, Heroin to Hero. Paul, thank you.
1: You're more than welcome, Marcus, anytime. See
0: you soon. Taddy bye.
1: Stacey, bye
0: bye. Scots Care, supporting London Scots with financial grants, welfare advice, counseling, sheltered housing, jobs coaching and family support.